the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to another episode of Sideline Sanity. I'm Michelle Tafoya. We are sponsored by Legacy Precious Metals. There has never been a better time to invest in precious metals. Keep watching that stock market. Keep watching all the indicators. Your safe long-term play is gold and silver. And for that, I recommend Legacy Precious Metals. You can find them at LegacyPMInvestments.com. LegacyPMInvestments.com. Coming up. You may have heard a little bit about Liz Collin and her husband, Bob Kroll. Liz was a very popular anchor at the CBS station in Minneapolis, St. Paul, WCCO-TV. Her husband, Bob Kroll, was the head of the police, the police officers union, the, the police department union in Minneapolis. Um, and so imagine having those two people living under the same roof when the George Floyd event happens. Imagine that. You've got Bob Kroll talking with police officers constantly, learning, finding out what's going on. And you've got his wife, Liz Collin, covering this from a news perspective. And all the while, because she's married to a police officer, she's being called a white supremacist. She's getting protests at her home and at work. And she's being pulled off of the most important story of the moment, the George Floyd death. Well, she has since severed ties with WCCO-TV. She is with Alpha News, and she's written a book that tells the story from a different point of view. You will hear from police officers. You will hear from all kinds of eyewitnesses who saw what was there, what you heard, and what you didn't hear when the riots in Minneapolis were going on. Liz Collin joins us next. For nearly three decades, she's reported the action from the sidelines. She started very young. She's covered the NBA, NFL, Olympics, and the college football and basketball national championships. And now, during these insane times in our world, Michelle Tafoya thinks we need a serious dose of sanity. This is Sideline Sanity with your host, one of the sanest people on planet Earth, Michelle Tafoya. Well, they're lying. The media, the left and the death of George Floyd. That is the name of the book by Liz Collins, who joins us as promised. I mean, you come right out with the title, Liz, and say they're lying. And it's the media and the left, and they're lying about, well, a, a lot of things, your book details. Congratulations. It's been on the Amazon bestseller list. You were telling me that's fantastic. Why do you think there's still an appetite for this book? Well, thank you, Michelle, so much for, for having me. You've kind of been a personal inspiration uh, for me as well, just uh, you know, speaking with courage and coming out uh, to be able to, to speak the truth and 
and and talk about it. But I, I think this story really changed uh, so much in, in Minnesota, especially in Minneapolis, of course, not only when it comes to policing, but just the way that people live their daily lives. And I, and I felt from the very beginning um, that this story was not being told in a factual manner um, from where I worked and what I witnessed um, being married uh, to a police officer uh, during during this tumultuous time. A police officer who was also very involved in the union. We'll get to that in a second. And as I mentioned in the intro, Liz Collin was with WCCO-TV. So you hear about this tape, but you then we're talking about the George Floyd tape. You were at home when you first heard about this, correct? Yeah, this was Memorial Day weekend, uh, May 25th, 2020, just taking folks back to that. Um, and we're sort of just, just getting home, unpacking and such. And, and Bob got a call as his phone um, always was, was kind of ringing in a way. And it was from uh, Thomas Lane talking about how a man in custody um, seemed to be experiencing a, a drug overdose at the time of his arrest. And he called back a short time later uh, to say, sadly, that um, this person who we would eventually uh, discover would be George Floyd uh, died at the hospital. So the... the- did the did the autopsy confirm that that he died at the hospital or did he die on scene? George well, Floyd. Well, he was he was pronounced um, dead at at the hospital, but the autopsy okay. um, we we go into kind of great detail in the book uh, just just about that in and of itself. Um, what the autopsy said um, the the autopsy was conducted twelve hours after George Floyd uh, died. It was withheld. Uh, we know now for a week after that, after part of Minneapolis burned to the ground. And we're really taking readers through um, minute by minute, hour by hour of the, those early days and the decisions that were made, the information that was released, but I think more importantly, the information that was not. It's so important that people understand that very often what's worse is what you're not being told versus what you are being told. Liz, you had such a unique situation throughout this. If you could nutshell it for people, what you were doing, how your husband was involved, you go, you, you tell it very well in this, in the book, but for our listeners to understand just how, again, unique your situation was, this is quite a confluence of professions and of people on this, at this particular moment. So again, explain that what your role was at WCCO TV, what your husband was doing, and how you two were sort of bouncing information off each other as this was going on. Yeah, I think to even back up a little bit more, being a Minnesota native, I grew up in Worthington, Minnesota, dreamed of being on the news, Michelle. That's, uh, I know our stories are, are a little similar in, in that way, you know, a kid with a dream, right? So I chased it all across the country and landed my dream job at WCCO uh, back in 2008, where I kind of worked my way up from being a cub reporter and and held an anchor position. I was the weekend anchor for for 12 years there. By the time this incident uh, happened, I'd go on to spend a couple more years um, after that uh, at at the station. But I was the the main fill-in anchor. I was a familiar face uh, with with the station. And this really changed everything for me um, with my professional role. Bob and I had been married for a couple years at this time. When this happened, he was the president um, of the the police union representing at that time um, nearly 900 police officers in Minneapolis. We know now, sadly, there's about uh, half that um, because of the lies that were told uh, due to this incident. Um, and I was, yes, yeah, sidelined from my anchor position. I would never anchor another show at WCCO again. 
Um, and in fact, I couldn't report on basically anything anymore beyond uh, COVID. Um, that was sort of my 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 beat for a couple of years, uh, if you will, to to um, fo- follow that. But it really changed everything. How how were you told? How were you informed that you were being sidelined from this story? And as you said, so many others when you had spent so much time at WCCO TV. Well, um, I it wasn't really told outright. I think that uh, management was was kind of gauging the the waters, if you will. But um, we had a, a couple high profile protests at our house. Uh, there was one at the television station during the the six o'clock news. This is really when I think we let the mob basically take over Minnesota with no questions asked. I say that journalists turned into activists, including in my my newsroom uh, where I saw it firsthand, and no questions were asked. There was no critical thinking, no no common sense. And um, I was always a, a proponent of of the police as far as I, I understood the job a bit, not only being married to a police officer, but I took time to, to be in a citizen's academy. And this is a this is a, a, a story that, you know, a, a lot of these uh, different high profile incidents um, I understood as far as the, the release of body camera footage or different uh, training, et cetera. So I was always a kind of a voice to go to in in the newsroom, uh, but it became clear very quickly uh, that my voice was not wanted um, in this. You know that this basically became about race from the very beginning because a white police officer interacted with a, a, a black man during, a, during an arrest. Um, and I was really troubled by that narrative uh, from the start because I know that um, that there were going to be some consequences and, you know, his career suicide in a way, if you would, would speak out uh, against that narrative, which the media helped to push. Right. Uh, and it certainly, um, certainly was for a lot of people, anyone who tried to speak or even question any of the reaction was immediately called a name and people became very, very afraid of being labeled. And the protests at your house and at the station, obviously at the station, they were protesting you. Was it simply because you were married to the president of the, the uh, Minnesota or Minneapolis Police Union? Well, ironically, um, many of the protests brought up the fact that I was white um, and had blonde hair and, you know, all the things that sounded quite racist to me, uh, to, to be honest. But um, it was mostly due to, to my marriage. Um, I was accused of being the master manipulator of news uh, in the Twin Cities. But But more than anything, when I talk about the mob, um, you know, th- these were people that didn't even know my name, really. You know, they were demanding Liz Collins resign. Uh, these are not WCCO viewers, but they go on Twitter and not only, you know, threaten your job, but but threaten your life. And I, and I feel that uh, the station where I worked gave in to the mob um, because that's, you know, what happened, especially that summer. And I think that that continues uh, to this day in a bit. Um, but it, it kind of helped me find my voice and, and, and leave. And also just, just to be able to expose, I think, um, the people that w- were responsible from, from the very start. Um, this is a, a police chief, uh, a mayor uh, of Minneapolis. The governor played a role. Of course, Keith Ellison, uh, the attorney general of Minnesota. They were just kind of the perfect people in the perfect positions for this to play out in Minnesota. And the consequences have been felt across the country. No question about that. The book is They're Lying, The Media, the Left, and the Death of George Floyd. When we come back from this quick break, Liz is going to tell us about all the people that she has interviewed. I think this was almost the most difficult part of the book for me to read was just hearing these officers, the anguish, the embarrassment, the frustration, the confusion, the outrage. 
and none of them felt they were being heard. But Liz Collin is making sure their stories are heard. Back in just a second. Well, we're getting towards the end of the year here. It's November of 2022, and it's time to think about finances on so many levels, right? Are you going to be able to buy your Christmas gifts? Can you still fill up your tank with gas? I'll tell you, it's still overwhelming to me. And I refuse to be conditioned that these are the prices we're going to have to live with from now on. Things are screwy in, in, in the American economy. And the other part of it that you need to think about is your long-term investments. Well, that's where silver and gold come into play. And when investing in silver and gold, I trust legacy precious metals. These people know what they're doing. They can talk to you and answer all your questions. Every question that you have about where to invest the gold. Should it go in your IRA, your 401k? How do you invest in it? How much? How little? All of the questions that you may have about investing in precious metals, they're ready to answer those questions for you. Now, these days, it feels a lot like 2008. For those of you that remember that moment, no fun. And those who invested in gold back in 2008, they saw some really significant gains and others, they lost their retirements. So this is a a move you need to make, at least to pick up the phone and call Legacy Precious Metals. You can speak with an IRA expert. They're at 866-528-1903, 866-528-1903, or download their free investor's guide at LegacyPMInvestments.com, LegacyPMInvestments.com. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Liz, I mentioned before the break that it was almost difficult to read some of this book. And I had been warned, but it's it, it's so compelling. And it's it's so important to read the stories of these people who were in the police precinct, who were told to leave, who were looking for leadership, who got none. How did you find people who were so willing to talk to you about what went on that day? And, and why do you think people wanted to tell their story? I think from from the start again that these were voices that were silenced, uh, and I wanted to go back to them because they had stories to tell. Uh, they had truth to be told, um, and these were officers. I, I agree with you. I think that that was the most difficult part with doing some of those interviews uh, with those officers. So the so these are 
you know, cops who've served decades uh, in Minneapolis at, at that point, and they're basically told in the middle of an afternoon to pack up their belongings from the third precinct because they're planning to surrender it to protesters. And, you know, the, these officers are telling me they all thought it was a joke at the time. Who thought this was because actually they, they, they actually were being told the, the word surrender was legitimate, right? They were going to like give it up as almost a symbolic gesture. Yeah, this was some sort of prize, and they thought that the protesters would stop at, at that point. Nobody really took it seriously, but then as the the hours pass and a, a city bus pulls up to collect their belongings, uh, you know, they know it's it's time for for them to get their get their stuff. Uh, but then they then they proceed to stay there for for several hours uh, before the, the call is made uh, to get them out of there. And then I, I think this is a a pretty eye-opening part of the book as well, that the city bus comes to collect their belongings, basically pulls up to the door. But when the actual officers, uh, these men and women, are, are told to evacuate, the city bus pulls up a half mile away. So they're forced to uh, to run for their lives, essentially, um, through this angry mob as as things are being thrown at them. We talked to an officer who loses his teeth uh, during, during the protests. Um, and the, the bus is actually even late to pick them up um, after this planned uh, surrender. And, and they believe that this was going to be some sort of reparation that city leaders had set up, that if the protesters, you know, wouldn't wouldn't kill a police officer, uh, but but hurt one of them, uh, that, that, that they would also be happy. It's really completely disgusting. And almost like almost like evening the score. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Oh, my God. And and again, I think that was one of the most difficult parts for those of us who live in Minnesota and close to Minneapolis or right around Minneapolis. And we're watching all of this develop. I couldn't believe my eyes when these all these cars and, you know, police officers were speeding out of this precinct and letting it go and saying it's yours and we're not going to stay to protect it. It was such a it seemed like such a cowardly move. And at all this time, it, it seemed to me that there was no one from leadership really to be heard. Everything seemed to be going on behind the scenes and no one was coming out and trying to quell any of the violence. What were what, what were the overriding messages you heard from the police as far as where was the leadership? I think that that's the question they asked themselves again and again, Michelle. Um, they, they were very candid about that. Um, they they never even saw in, in many cases any administration at all uh, from the police department. They never saw the mayor, um, and and so they talk very candidly about that. And and many officers even after the riots, they're saying, okay, well we we understand that you know Minnesota's never seen anything like this. Minneapolis has never seen anything like this. We're going to just um, you know stay stay on the job. Um, but then they quickly realized that even after the riots, um, these attitudes that that city leaders basically helped the public develop because of this narrative they're they're pushing. They they re- realized that you know attitudes um, ha- have changed uh, towards them. And so one officer even talks about how he can't even find um, somebody from administration to basically say that he he's quitting the job. Um, you know, after 25 plus years, they can't even find someone to 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 say. Uh, you know, I'm I'm done with this because they've all just just disappeared. And this is also in the in the book uh, where where we talk about this um, kind of coordinated PR approach um, that that's happening. And a week later, um, we have the the police chief saying that he is pulling out of contract negotiations with the union. You know, basically blaming Bob and and the board, if you will. And it it was 
kind of because the, the the riots were such a failure that they needed someone to pin to pin this all on, and they decided the union would be, um, you know, what they would would go after. And I think that that was a, a, a clear message, um, and and helped to pave the way with what we what we see in the you know ensuing chaos that it, that has happened since. The defund the police movement, I can think of Baltimore and Minneapolis, where I heard those messages very clearly. And it wasn't just from the protesters. It was from politicians. It was from leaders. It was reimagine the police. It was all of these things that suddenly, overnight, there was this incident that was horrific. And we no longer needed the police. When, in fact, I, I think we need the police more than ever. Where do you think right now the Minneapolis Police Department is in terms of its footing and in terms of this fight against defunding? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question because, uh, you know, I've already talked about the, the just manpower numbers, right? There are basically yeah. been, been cut cut in half, 40 to, to 50% fewer officers. And they've brought in uh, a couple new high-profile positions, including a new, new police chief, but also this uh, commissioner of public safety. Um, but these are administrative jobs. You know, these are manager jobs. They don't have any street cops uh, anymore because <laughs> there's nobody who wants to, to sign up for this. Uh, you know, Bob talks about when he, he was you know, an officer from 30 years ago, there'd be eight or 900 people that would sign up for just a few positions. Well, now they, they struggle to even get single digits um, to, to sign up for many open positions uh, that they have now. So, you know, it, it, it's kind of like, do you, do you see light at the end of the tunnel? And a lot of these officers said no, um, you know, 10, 15 years really from turning things around as far as a, a police department is concerned. But you're absolutely right about the politicians pushing this message from the beginning. And, you know, I talk a little bit about that in the book, too. This is 2020. And, you know, they're trying to oust President Trump back then um, at all costs. And, and this, I, th I think, um, you know, that can't be understated as far as the political leaders who decided uh, to, to use what happened in, in Minneapolis to do so. You, you mentioned that immediately race became the issue in this event, that it was a white police officer and a, a black man who was killed. What do you think today? Here we are more than well over two years beyond and out of this, and you've got a, a unique viewpoint and you've interviewed so many people about this. What do you think really happened there? I mean, it, it's the the video is hard to stomach. I've made myself watch it once or twice. I don't know if I've watched the entire thing more than once, but I've watched I've certainly watched it in its entirety at least once and portions thereof. And I find it really difficult, really difficult to watch on so many levels. What what do you think happened? And do you think that Derek Chauvin is paying the correct penalty? Well, I think that you know you can't watch this video and think anything but it. It is horrific. It's it's difficult to watch, um, of course. And and I know you're probably talking about the the Facebook video. So there's this Facebook yeah. video, of course, that go that goes viral, uh, Michelle, um, eight, eight or nine minutes worth. Um, but then there's you know 15 minutes of backstory that we learn about later, months later, on body camera footage. Uh, so in the book, um, you know, I talk a, a lot about the, the lies and lies by omission, one being the fact that the body cameras are are withheld. That's never happened in a, 
uh, Minneapolis uh, police incident before. The reason these officers have body cameras is for transparency. Well, the, the body cameras show different, different angles. Um, we later learn even that the chief himself admits that uh, he sees Derek Chauvin's knee more on George Floyd's shoulder blade, uh, not his neck. Uh, so that narrative that was told from the beginning um, was a lie. Also, there are other officers involved, which we didn't really know about, if you remember. Um, from, the, from the early days, we have uh, Tutau, who's Hmong American. Uh, we have Jay Exalit. J. Alexander King, who is a, a black officer. Um, so this is being told from the very beginning that this is racist. Well, these are two groups of mixed race officers uh, that arrive on scene. They're, they're called there, uh, being the, the rookie cops being called first, and, and uh, Derek Chauvin and Tutau basically show up to, to help because they're struggling for so long because George Floyd uh, will not comply. George Floyd uh, says on the, the body camera footage that he can't breathe long before Derek Chauvin even arrives on, on scene. Uh, he never says to Derek Chauvin, get off me, or uh, there, there's nothing uh, along those lines. And what's also interesting is the Minneapolis Police Department is, is answering questions, um, but they're not doing so truthfully. They say right away that this is not a part of training. They've never seen this maneuver before. They even testified to that on the stand. Well, it's interesting that the, the training manual, those pages of this MRT training, this maximum restraint technique, which officers do use as part of training, disappears online uh, for weeks after this happens. And I'm a, a reporter at the time going, are we going to do a story about this? This seems really, I've just never seen something like this. I was, again, very troubled by, by so many things, but a lot of these disappearing facts bothered me uh, the most. And, and the media just was fine to go ahead and, and push the, the racist narrative. And I really felt that that was poisoning the, the public and especially, uh, you know, poisoning attitudes toward, toward policing. And it, it, it bothered me uh, as a journalist, uh, as a mom, uh, you know, as the wife of a, of a police officer. And I think some of the, that damage can't be reversed at this point. It's it's amazing. Um, I guess of all the interviews that you did, because, again, reading through them, you feel you feel so clearly the pain and frustration and rage and confusion and 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 just absolute almost you get the feeling that these police officers just felt deserted just felt completely let down. Um, which of the interviews compelled you the most? Which one really moved you the most? Yeah, I think talking to, to the officers, um, you know, that were involved with the, the third precinct, uh, certainly. Uh, but there's a, also an interview with Sam Belcourt. Um, this is a longtime uh, Army veteran. She served all across uh the world, uh, essentially, including two tours in Iraq, and she never thought something like this would happen on American soil. Um, and I think that 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 interview really resonated. Um, this is someone who lived to be a, a police officer, but not only that, but lived lived to serve. Um, and and she's someone now who has kind of started her own business and you know runs a food truck truck with her her wife in another state, and they, they actually get sick to their stomach even, even going around uh, Minneapolis when they, when they do uh, come back. And I think there are a lot of stories like that. 
Minneapolis, in many ways, lost the the best of of the best. These aren't officers. They weren't some occupying force in Minneapolis. Uh, they cared about the businesses. They cared about the people. And and having to to hear about those days where they're apologizing to basically everyone for having their property destroyed. Um, they're they're talking about having to watch buildings burned down because they have no um, authorization to make any arrests at all. Um, you know, I really don't think that the the full story about the riots ha- has been told uh, correctly. And we see that the media quickly moves on. You know how it works, right, Michelle? You just yeah. move on, move on to the next um, the next thing. And I, I just don't think that the that the story w- was told um, factually, um, uh, you know, about the riots, about this incident. And the media quickly, you know, took the spotlight elsewhere. How much pushback pushback have you received in terms of, oh, well, listen, you, you can't see straight with this because you're married to a police officer who was intimately involved in a lot of these conversations and therefore you're biased. And so you can't write this story um, objectively. Have you how much of that have you received? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, the, the Twitter trolls uh, come out here and there. But I will say more than anything, there has been 100 percent, 99.9 percent, maybe I should say, uh, support. People are thanking me for, for speaking up. People knew that there was more that they were than they were being told. Um, and I've actually heard from a, a couple people on the left. And in the left, I talk about this. The left isn't Democrats or, or liberals. The left is this population of people. Um, that they don't want you canceled, they want you killed, and you can't think any differently um, <laughs> than them, or you know you can't even have a, a conversation. I don't really think there's that many people like that uh, in Minnesota. I still think we you know we're a smart, a smart group of of uh, hardworking uh, folks and, and such. But I, I can't tell you. I mean, I've received um, emails uh, not only all across the state, but even across the country. Um, at this point, people who knew something really wasn't right and and thanking me uh, for coming forward to put that in print. Do you think that the verdict for Derek Chauvin was the correct one? Well, I'm glad you asked that because we have a, a whole section in the book um, talking about the trial. So he's found guilty, right, on these three three charges. So he has to be guilty. These other officers, they plead guilty. So they're, they're guilty. Um, but I think it's, it's quite eye-opening to see the manipulation happening uh, be behind the scenes, even in the courtroom. Uh, Keith Ellison's past, I think, plays a, a huge role in this case. He's now put five police officers in prison. Uh, he has uh, made his career on hating police. Um, we, we have a very interesting story about just an arrest that was made in 2019 about one of his uh, high-profile associates, a longtime uh, gang member, and how he kind of has the uh, get-out-of-prison-free card um, with him, uh, Keith Ellison's business card. Um, but I, I think that um, I, I ask people to, to read that section if that's if that's what they think. And I and um, just even for everything from the jury instructions, uh, 14 pages worth of jury instructions. That's never happened before. Um, the way that uh, the prosecution in this case takes up two floors of the Hennepin County courtroom. That's never happened before. Uh, also, we have jurors who talk to the judge about they want off this case because they've been told by their employers um, if they find uh, Derek Chauvin not guilty, they'll be fired. Uh, so we see the, the mob mentality also rule the day uh, when it comes to this uh, court case as well. And I've been in touch um, with Derek, uh, his mother, and also the other officers and, and their families too, and they all have very interesting, um, you, you know, stories to tell. That the police chief never reached out to them. He never even really wanted to know the truth. Um, he he never talked to them once um, after after this incident. And and these two rookie officers, they were his recruits. 
Um, <laughs> and he, he had, you know, a, a relationship with both of them, but never talked to them again. In talking to Derek Chauvin, um, what is that like? Yeah, I think that um, Derek has has been described by by those who know him and his mom too. He's a very by the book, um, robotic type of officer, if that if that makes sense. But knows the the manuals really well, the the training really well. Um, and what's interesting about this MRT training is that. Um, they recognize that something is happening with with George Floyd. They they understand he's he's not truthful in the fact that he they ask him if he's you know taking drugs. He says he says no. Um, so they are going to put what's called the the hobble on him, uh, this strap that basically connects um, his his ankles to his waist, but they decide they're trying to, if you listen again to, to the body cameras, which, which were hidden. Um, and I feel like the police chief and the mayor could have talked about, you know, the conversations these officers were having just to explain more context and what was transpiring. Uh, but they, but they did not. Uh, but he's talking about, um, downgrading the, the, the force. They're trying to get the ambulance there sooner. We know the ambulance now basically took its time and staged in another location because they're worried about the crowd. Uh, they don't put this hobble strap on, um, so they're downgrading force. And in the manual, it basically says that um, if the hobble strap is used, then they should roll over into the side recovery position. But it doesn't actually say what to do if the hobble strap is not used. Um, so, uh, again, just going by this by the book um, he's not, he, he, he's not a racist. <laughs> I'll say, I'll say that from, from the very beginning. Um, and that, that I think is what bothered his, his mom the most. Um, you know, he's married, was married to an Asian woman. Um, he said many interactions that he's just not the, the, the monster he was, he was made out to be, uh, by the media, especially. And, and he's same, same with these other officers as well. Thomas Lane volunteered his time, uh, working with, Somali children in a, a youth camp because he wanted this job um, so badly with MPD. This was his dream job. And we talk about the text he was showing or shared with his wife just a, a week prior to this incident. Um, and, you know, he was thought he was, you know, he signed up to make a difference and to, to help people. And then to be painted, you know, as this racist, evil uh, monster is, is certainly not uh, who he is either. Liz, it's it's got to have taken a large measure of courage for you to say all these things, write all these things, publish these things. Where, where are you finding that courage? Is it simply rooted in you want to find the truth? What, where, where did you get that courage? Because again, the mob is pretty fierce. Yeah, I'll, I'll be honest. This wasn't part of the, the life plan. Um, but, but I think I go back to, you know, just, just being a kid and, uh, and, you know, wanting, wanting to, to be on the news and, and tell people the truth. And, and, and that really, uh, bothered me also being, being a mom that we're now teaching our kids to look at people's skin color. I mean, you know, and I know you've talked about this before, which I commend you for doing so. Um, that's not how I was raised at all. Um, and, and I believe that it shouldn't be what we teach or teach our kids and the media shouldn't be part of that propaganda push. Um, the media shouldn't be teaching kids to be scared of police or to hate the police. Um, and, and so I really felt like, you know, leaving, um, I, I'd have to uh, tell, tell this story um, in a way. And, you know, I think uh, my dad is a very hard worker, still has his own business in, in Worthington um, and such. But I just kind of, you know, kept thinking about um, 
you know, what does this world look like if people don't speak up? We, you know, this is, this is how, how it is. And I, I could kind of feel God pushing me in this direction. So sometimes I guess you just have to have to listen. <laughs> Well, I'm glad we got to listen to you today. Um, it's a really compelling read. They're lying. The media, the left, and the death of George Floyd from someone who was in, I, I can't imagine a, a more interesting confluence of of people, you and your husband, seeing this and you from a journalist's point of view, him from a police officer's point of view, from someone who was president of the union and trying to make sense of it all. But these, like I said, all the interviews that you did, as difficult as they are to read, it's so important to read them. And I, I'm really disappointed our recent elections here in Minnesota turned out the way they did, because I think we've left in power. Uh, Tim Walls, the governor who oversaw this, this mess without saying a word, and Keith Ellison, whom you talked about earlier, who really really uh, got a challenge. But anyway, it's, it's, it's frustrating to think that still either the message isn't fully out there or people are okay with the status quo, which I think is a lot of what we saw on that day when, or those several days of riots, because it was easier, I think, for people to just say, get out of the way than it was to say, why aren't we standing up for these small business owners who are losing everything and sobbing on the streets right now because we're letting people burn them down for things that they had nothing to do with. It's, it was all such a mess and a tragic time. And I really encourage people to read the book and get a, get a different sense of it than maybe you've ever had before. Liz Collin, thank you so much. Thank you, Michelle, very much. I'm grateful. Thank you. Yeah, well, we're grateful for your courage. Um, this has been Sideline Sanity, folks. They're lying, the media, the left, and the death of George Floyd. It's a compelling read. I highly recommend it. Uh, we will see you next time. In the meantime, be brave as Liz Collin has done here and do good. Thanks for listening. Happy to talk once again with Charles Thorngren, the CEO of Legacy Precious Metals. You know, I think it still is confusing to people, uh, some people, uh, as to why a precious metals investment would be a worthwhile one, particularly at this time when they're thinking, I'm doing all I can to put gas in the car. Why is now a particularly good time? And we'll go from there to how small of an investment is worthwhile for someone? You know, a great question. And I think the, the importance of why really comes into the fact that we have to save for ourselves, whether it's a little here, a little there whether it's making it a plan and putting out so much a paycheck, whether it's making sure we fund our retirement account, we have to realize we are responsible for ourselves in the long run. <laughs> you mean that no one else is going to ride up and save us, you know, on some white steed? It ain't going to happen. <laughs> it ain't going to happen. You know, that, and anyone who's promising to do that is getting ready to take advantage of you in some form or fashion. Yeah. And so, so if, if I'm an investor, a potential investor, and I'm looking at legacy precious metals and I'm saying to myself, yeah, I, I, this sounds smart. I don't have a lot to spend. What would you tell that person? I would say, do what you can. If you never start, you never get there. So the most important step you can take is saying, I'm going to take care of myself and my family. I'm going to make 
get a plan. I'm going to take action. I'm going to start in the way that's comfortable for me. That's the important thing. The first step is always the hardest. But once you take that first step, the second step is easier. And then you're moving. And then once you're in motion, it's hard to stop you. So that first step, most important step. I always tell people they can call and talk to an IRA expert or, or check out the, the guide that they can download for free, the investor's guide. What, what is the number one question that you get from people who are first-time investors? The biggest question I get, is this right for me? That is the question. And that comes from everyone. So, so everyone's asking the same, is this right for me? And yet we're all so unique. And, and yet it, it is a sound investment for just about any portfolio, isn't it? It is. We, even though we're all unique, that uniqueness is going to tailor the way we begin the investment. Okay. But we're all in the same situation. That's the one thing I think we seem to forget in today's society. Whether you agree with somebody or not, we're in this together. America is in this transition that we're in right now. We're dealing with the same issues. Some people like them, some don't, but we're all in it together, right? So the need is the same. How we prepare and how we invest is what changes from person to person, but we all have that same need. It's a great point. And again, I encourage people to 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 just make the call, pick up the phone. That step is always the hardest. I'm not sure why that is. In any kind of effort that you make in life, whether it's weight loss or exercise or investing some way to better your life, it always seems like that first hurdle is is the challenge. Uh, but when they call, who who are they going to talk to? Who what what's going to be on the other end of the line for them? Great question. You're, you're going to speak with one of our customer representatives. And their job is not to sell you metals, right? We have a much different approach. We're going to answer all your questions. We're going to show you what options you have. And on the rare occasion, this isn't right for you. We're going to say this probably isn't right for you. Um, we have a gold company here, but you know, I, I say it all the time. What we actually deal in is customer service. We want each and every individual that calls to get the answers they need to be able to make the decision that's right for them. And we want to do that in a way that's not pushy, that's not salesy. And that's what makes my team so special. We care about each and every caller. And we're going to show you what options you have. And then you get to make an informed decision. So don't be afraid of the phone call. It's the best thing you can do. And this is why I am so honored and I feel privileged to be sponsored by Legacy Precious Metals. They're the ones that I'm going to deal with. And I encourage you to pick up the phone, give them a call, even easier. Go check out their their guide. It's a free investor's guide at LegacyPMInvestments.com, LegacyPMInvestments.com. But as you said, Charles, pick up the phone. You're going to talk to someone who can answer your specific questions and get get the ball rolling, get, get started, do something that is a long-term play for your family's benefit. Charles, it's always great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's always great to be here. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.